Good morning. Um, I'm Kathy Olson, the Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Psychology here at Reed. And I have the great honor and pleasure to introduce our speaker, Mark Burford, the R.P. Wallenberg Professor of Music. Mark has taught at Reed for 15 years, joining Reed's faculty in 2007. He received his BA in music with an emphasis in music theory from the University of California, Santa Barbara, before earning his master's and PhD in historical musicology from Columbia University. He's returning to Reed this fall from being on sabbatical this last year. On sabbatical, he was the Sheila Biddle Ford Foundation Fellow at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Merck shared with me a little about his path to becoming a music historian. He noted, quote, I guess you can say that as a kid, I wanted to be an orchestral conductor. But as a first-gen college student who had no idea what academia was, a college professor wrote in comments on a music history paper that I should consider musicology, which I'd never heard of before. When I found out it involved listening to and writing about music, I thought I'd give grad school a shot. And lucky for us, he did. In addition to Mark's anecdote, I looked a little bit around on the internet, and I looked at an old Daily Nexus newspaper from UC Santa Barbara, which featured a 1989 interview with Mark, lacrosse defender Mark Burford, who said, they asked him what, what he wanted to do after college. He said, I'd like to do something in a musical field. I've always been involved in music. And I'd like to do something maybe in an administration. So we'll come back to that. Um, later on, um, Mark's outstanding field achievements in lacrosse were honored. He was, um, became recognized as a member of the UCSB Men's Lacrosse Hall of Fame. So today I'm going to focus more on his achievements within uh, music and within Reed rather than on the lacrosse field, but wanted to acknowledge kind of his beginnings back in college. Um, recent achievement, most notably this summer, Mark received the Dent Medal. That literally is a medal. I haven't seen this medal, but um, every year it's awarded by the Royal Musical Association to honor a mid-career faculty member for their outstanding contributions to musicology. The Royal Musical Association notes in describing, it, describing Mark, his research is distinctive and broad-reaching in its implications for the field, melding music's sonic aspects and political valence, linking histories of music to the histories of complex ideas, and writing in a highly engaging manner. Mark's research and teaching focuses on late 18th and 19th century Austro-German Austro -German concert music and 20th century popular music in the United States, with a particular focus on African-American music after World War II. His research initially focused on Brahms, but he has turned in the last decade to black popular music studies. The Royal Musical Association notes, he has opened up a new field offering black objects of study as legitimate and productive focus for musicology inquiry. This recent work began in 2012 in a publication in the Journal of American, Musicolo of the American Musicological, Musicological Society. He wrote an article called Sam Cooke as Pop Album Artist, A Reinvention in Three Songs. And he received the Society for American Music's 2012 Irving Lowen's Award for this outstanding article on American music. In 2019, he published his monograph, Mahalo Jackson and the Black Gospel Field, with the Oxford Press. Um, the book received, and I'll list a whole host of awards, the um, Oda Kenkel Otto Kenkeldi Award from the American Musicolo Musicological Society for the Outstanding Book of Musicology by a Senior Scholar, the Society's highest honor, 
the Woody Guthrie Award for the most outstanding book on popular music from the US branch of the International Association for the Study of Popular Music, the Award for Excellence for the best history book in the category of historical research in blues, soul, gospel, and R&B from the Association for Recorded, Muse Recorded Sound Collections, and was selected as a choice outstanding academic title. The next year, he edited the Mahalo Jackson Reader. The Royal Musical Association, in describing his work, describes it in importance in this way. It's notable for the attention paid to the interaction of sonic detail with socially attributed meanings, including the racialized forces that shaped and were shaped by the performances of black performers and for its theoretical breadth and rigor. He also considers sounding music from the perspective of multiple listeners, and so musical meaning is understood as collectively produced and determined. His wider contributions to musicology is a compassionate demonstration of how we might productively rethink the rationalizations of the discipline's past. I'm going to end by saying, in addition to the profound impact that Mark has had on the field of musicology, he's profoundly impacted the music department here at Reed and also the broader Reed community. He's a sought-after instructor, teaching courses this year in music history, women in, in 60s popular music, black freedom struggle, and Africa and black music. He's a college leader. And his idea back in college in 1989 that he wanted to maybe do something in administration, um, he's been our interim dean for institutional diversity in recent years and is currently serving on the Committee for Advancement and Tenure and also stepped up to be the secretary of it even to help administer that committee in recent weeks. Um, I hope you'll join me in welcoming our speaker, Mark Burford. Thank you very much for that very generous introduction, Kathy, and resourceful, I must say. First introduction, it involves my lacrosse pass, which is a, which is a breakthrough, I suppose. Um, it really is a privilege and a pleasure to be able to speak to uh, the class of uh, 2026 today in the company of their family and friends uh, and my uh, faculty and staff colleagues. I think above all because at a time when we continue to swim upstream in the face of a pandemic that seems to linger without end, uh, it does feel good to set aside a day to mark a conspicuous and important beginning, especially in person. So as Dean Olson mentioned, I'm a music historian, and being part of a music department puts me in the rare circumstance of sharing the classroom with students, virtually all of whom are already experts in some form or another in the subject I teach, whether their area of connoisseurship is hip-hop or K-pop, noise music or chamber music, indie rock or Armenian folk, which means I learn from my students constantly. And as a musicologist, which is just a science-y sounding name for a music, for music historian, I also feel fortunate that Reed has allowed me the freedom and the support to pursue the breadth of my interests as a teacher scholar, which has enabled me to offer a diverse array of courses and dig into a range of research topics. I arrived at Reed in 2007, having written a dissertation on the early career of German composer Johannes Brahms, the 19th century historicism. And in recent years, my main focus has been the African-American, has been African-American gospel music 
particularly the life and career of the woman some call the queen of the gospel singers, Mahalia Jackson. My current project, which I broke ground on during my sabbatical last year, orbits a figure that nearly all first year students will be learning much more about and discussing in Humanities 110, the African American intellectual and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. And for the benefit of, of those who don't know about or are only vaguely familiar with him, here's a very quick speed date uh, with Du Bois in preparation for your more committed relationship in the spring. Though you will, of course, see other people. William Edward Burghardt Du Bois was born in 1868 in Western Massachusetts and died in Accra, Ghana in 1963. And that lifespan alone is worth pausing to register. The US historian in me would point out that Du Bois was born just five years after the abolition of slavery in the United States and died the night before Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. The music historian in me would observe that Du Bois was born the year that Richard Wagner's opera Die Meisterzinger and Brahms's German Requiem premiered and died the year that Marvin Gaye's Pride and Joy and the Beach Boys' Surf in USA were released. If only he'd been a record collector. But I guess he was busy. Du Bois' near century of life was truly amazing. It included a bachelor's degree from the HBCU Fisk University, graduate work in Berlin in the 1890s, a PhD from Harvard in 1895, the first by an African-American, an influential organizing role in the Pan-Africanist movement, authorship of numerous books, including The Philadelphia Negro, Black Reconstruction in America, The Souls of Black Folk, and The Dark Princess, works of sociology, history, political philosophy, and fiction, respectively, and in 1909, co-founding the civil rights organization the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, perhaps better known as the NAACP. This is where my own research comes in. Du Bois left his faculty position at Atlanta University to become founding editor of the new NAACP magazine called The Crisis, a record of the darker races, which he oversaw from 1910 until 1934. My current project is the coverage of music in The Crisis during the Du Bois's 23-year editorship which has turned out to be both voluminous and fascinating. But it's only indicative of how music, as sound and as embodied activity, was a continuous preoccupation for Du Bois as a thinker and writer, as you'll learn about in Hume 110 when you read his chapter from the Souls of, uh, Souls of Black Folk on African-American spirituals, which he called Sorrow Songs. Fairly or unfairly, Du Bois is often cast as a cultural elitist, and you would be more likely to spot him in the concert hall than at a juke joint. But the pages of the crisis, which convened a polyphony of voices, even if Du Bois firmly held the baton, have revealed a much more complicated matrix of music in black America in the decades between the rise of ragtime around the turn of the century and the early years of the new Negro Renaissance in the 1920s, situating concert, popular, and folk music in proximity to a parade of issues ranging from social work to the promotion of black composers, from higher education to the boom in the circulation of phonograph recordings, from the desegregation of entertainment venues to the building of autonomous African-American institutions, from aesthetic idealism to black capitalist endeavor. These revelations have pushed me to rethink some of my previous assumptions about the historiography 
and even the substance of early 20th century African-American music. Du Bois himself was unmusical, but he returned repeatedly and in various ways to the topic of music and musicians and their implications for the lives, welfare, and futures of black people in the United States. How we might characterize and appraise the stakes of the making, hearing, and materiality of music suggested by Du Bois's intellectual output and political activism, and more basically, what goals he and his contemporaries believed music and black music making might help to achieve are questions that I hope to lead to some con conclusions in my research and in my teaching through conversation with my students. One of the factors that convinced Du Bois to leave academia and become a public intellectual was the notoriously barbaric lynching in 1899 of a black laborer in Georgia named Sam Hose just 40 miles from where Professor Du Bois was living and teaching at the time. In oral history recorded in 1961, the 93-year-old Du Bois remembered his visceral and career-altering response to seeing pieces of Hose's dismembered body displayed in the window of a butcher shop in downtown Atlanta. As he told his interviewer, I made up my mind that knowledge wasn't enough, that even if people were ignorant of essential matters which they had to know, they wouldn't correct their actions without more realization of just what the difficulties were. They had not only to know, but they had to act. And so I changed from studying the Negro problem to propaganda, to letting people know just what the Negro problem meant. When I encountered this recollection, I was interested in the nexus of knowledge, comprehension, interpretation, and action laid out by Du Bois. But I was even more struck by his use of the word propaganda to characterize his conscious turn to activism, particularly in conjunction with his decision to become editor of the crisis. Du Bois's frank explanation of his change in tactics still feels provocative. As he wrote in his 1940 autobiography, less as a confession than as a statement of vocation, my career as a scientist was to be swallowed up in my role as master propaganda. Part of the jolt of incongruity that comes, for me at least, when taking stock of the erudite and principled Du Bois as a devout propagandist reflects the way we commonly conceptualize and identify propaganda, which many and perhaps most of us might associate with totalitarian regimes, politically motivated misinformation campaigns, and other malevolent forms of persuasion. Viewed in the context of intellectual history, this is actually a fairly recent pejorative turn, dating to the First World War and more decisively to the Cold War, during which propaganda was a ready accusation and at the same time was relentlessly deployed by both the United States and the Soviet Union on their own citizens. Ever since, which means for the entire lifetime of most of the people in this tent, propaganda has been generally understood if not firmly accepted as the deceptive communication that each side of a political debate accuses the other side of stooping to. In discourse of all kinds, pointing out that another person's words are just propaganda as opposed to one's own truth is a dependable and omnipresent checkmate. Which made it eye-opening to discover how differently Du Bois thought about this concept which he seemed to understand as a conditional means not an intrinsically nefarious end. 
To be sure, Du Bois readily recognized the negative work of propaganda, which at its core we might define as a goal-directed mode of persuasion. In the final chapter of his 1935 book, Black Reconstruction, titled The Propaganda of History, Du Bois surveyed the, how previous historical writing on the period following the Civil War, through racist and bad faith narratives about the activist federal government and black people themselves, circulated ideas that precipitated lasting adverse outcomes for African Americans. A few years later, in a way that feels painfully resonant with the historical moment we're living in now, Du Bois expressed regret that, quote, we've raised propaganda to a capital P and elaborated an art, almost a science, of how one may make the world believe what is not true, provided the untruth is widely wished for thing. But it's also noteworthy how often Du Bois endorsed the possibility of propaganda working in other directions. In a 1924 issue of The Crisis, for instance, a photo caption identified anti-lynching picket signs as NAACP propaganda. In a review that same year, Du Bois praised an exhibit in Philadelphia documenting the rise and development of Negro music as a quiet and effective piece of propaganda. And notably, in the most famous passage from one of his most famous essays, Criteria of Negro Art, which you'll also read in Hume 110, Du Bois proclaimed rather defiantly, all art is propaganda and ever must be, despite the wailing of the purists. I stand in utter shamelessness and say that whatever art I have for writing has been used always for propaganda for gaining the right of black people to love and enjoy. I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda. But I do care when propaganda is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silent. You could devote an entire semester-long music history course to unpacking the implications of these four sentences alone, which suggest music's propagandistic potential. Taken at face value, Du Bois's demand for artist propaganda, for art that purposefully seeks to persuade others may remind us of music of all sorts, particularly with what we sometimes refer to as protest music. 19th century women's suffrage songs, the anti-lynching song Strange Fruit popularized by Billie Holiday, Woody Guthrie's populist ode This Land is Your Land, the caustic camp of Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, Plastic Ono Band's pacifist mantra Give Peace a Chance, Carl Bean's disco-era pride anthem, I Was Born This Way, and Janelle Monet and Wonderland's incantational Black Lives Matter track, Hell You Tom Bout, only scratched the surface. Leo Greenwood's 80s country hit, God Bless the USA, and Childish Gambino's music video, This Is America, propagandize for very different things. James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud is message music that conveniently comes with an instruction manual. And obviously, music as a vehicle of persuasion is not just a phenomenon of 20th century popular music. The Lutheran cantata, including some by Johann Sebastian Bach, often threw shade at the popes and the Ottoman Turks to consolidate German Protestant identity. And for that matter, the very practice of setting religious words to music, in say a Roman Catholic mass or a gospel song, is predicated on what St. Augustine at the end of the fourth century described as a belief that we're more fervently raised unto a flame of devotion when holy words are sung than when not. But in some ways, this is low-hanging fruit. 
however strange. Setting aside any specific content and without any intention whatsoever to de defend or recuperate the concept, I want to take a moment to think about what Du Bois's characterization of his own work as propaganda might invite us to consider at a more fundamental level. There's actually a lively academic field called propaganda studies that hopes to call our attention to a potentially more dialogic and civic-minded dynamic of persuasive communication. Just last year, the Anglo-Ghanaian philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah closed the New York Times op-ed by writing, democracy falters not when we disagree about things, but when we lose interest in trying to make sense of the other person's point of view and in trying to persuade that person of the merits of our own. In this context, we might envision persuasion as a much more inclusive circuit of intellectual call and response that involve acquiring requisite knowledge and depth of understanding, critically reflecting on what you're learning, formulating supported claims, considering your audience, and articulating what you think, for now at least, elegantly, cogently, and persuasively to others for their consideration. Ideally, the process is iterative, tending toward open-endedness and not foreclosure. To maximize persuasiveness, you may have to prepare yourself for counter-arguments, or complicating additional facts, or even deaf ears. Go back to the drawing board to reconsider and try again, a process my creative colleagues in the Division of the Arts call revision. It's not a matter of performative sparring with the end goal of winning an argument, or even impassioned insistence. Building a capacity to persuade others while maintaining the possibility of having our own mind changed with its outward-facing orientation, its premise that others have different views and disciplinary perspectives, and its prop propagation of solid cases for and against alternatives strikes me as being very close to the heart of a liberal arts education. There are, of course, less noble modes of persuasion, deception, bribery, abuse of power, blackmail, violence. In his Socratic dialogue, Gorgias, which scrutinizes the aims and ethics of the persuasive communication known as rhetoric, Plato distinguishes between persuasion that cements conviction, regardless of whether it's true or false, and persuasion that leads to greater understanding. So, just to be clear, successfully steering others toward unshakable convictions about, say, stolen elections, for instance, or even stubborn agnosticism is not the kind of persuasion I'm talking about. I'm thinking more along the lines of another 20th century African-American activist and thinker, Martin Luther King Jr., who followed in Du Bois's footsteps in advocating for propaganda. In a 1954 sermon, King said, quote, there is a noble sense in which propaganda can be used. Propaganda is simply an attempt to disseminate principles or ideas by organized effort, end quote. You've perhaps encountered King as having also said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But with all due respect to Dr. King, I have to confess that I've become a bit more skeptical of this aphorism, as reassuring and sustaining as the thought may be. I think I'm more inclined to believe that such an arc, if there is one, bends or becomes crooked because of the ideas we choose to propagate and become persuaded by. So, without getting distracted by propaganda's connotative baggage, 
we might think of Du Bois's self-identification as a master of propaganda as his expression of the urgency of becoming an informed, ethical, and persuasive communicator. Persuasion won't and shouldn't be the only kind of communicating that you undertake in the next four years. Formulating good questions is frankly a much more precious skill. And it's understandable to think of the world of propaganda as represented by commercial advertising, Washington lobbyists, PR firms, and yellow journalism. But as you embark upon your college careers and lives as adults, you might also remain open to imagining a different ecosystem of persuasive communication. One in which, rather than being confined to one side that Du Bois described as stripped and silent, you make conscious choices about how and whether to propagate your ideas and about what kinds of things you want to make a case for. In my reading, Du Bois, reeling from a gruesome act of anti-black violence, came to believe that propaganda, neither good, inherently good nor evil, but necessary, is founded upon the simple, tr simple idea that change and preservation are both possible and that our own persuasive communication of ideas and alternatives can be a part of making either happen. Thought of as persuasion, propaganda, which we habitually presume to harbor cynicism, can potentially be an affirmation of hope, a commitment to acts of intellectual generosity and necessary risk that arise from believing in others as much as you believe in your own ideas. To riff on Toni Morrison, who encouraged young writers to write the book they wish they could read, I encourage you to be the ears that you want to be heard with. As he explained in Criteria of Negro Art, Du Bois was drawn to music and the arts in part because he believed that beauty was a manifestation of truth. But that's just one way of conceptualizing truth. What does it mean for something to be true? Is truth something we learn or something we intuit? Is it deduced logically, or is it something we continually negotiate with others? Does it persistently reflect human experience, or does it hover on its margins, waiting to be claimed from lost and found? Class of 2026, you're beginning your college education at a time when these questions are as pressing as they have been at any moment in my lifetime, which, to tell the truth, is slightly unnerving for me, and probably for many of your professors. But the moment may also present a motivating opportunity for you as lifelong thinkers, citizens of the world, and hopefully persuasive communicators of the things you will come to understand and hold as true. In propagating your ideas during your college journey, I hope that you'll be led by the clarity of your thinking, the courage of your convictions, the quality and charisma of your speaking and writing, and the compassion with which you engage others. And even if you never aspire to words that are just propaganda, I do hope your read education will inspire you to make sure that the aspirations of your propaganda will always be just. Thanks for listening and welcome to read.